Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line, as always, is Ethan Zacks. Ethan, two Christmas concerts in the books. I am a <laughs> free man heading into break this last week and a half, and I streamed for six hours yesterday, and it felt great. Wow, so good. You know, I was uh, woke up this morning and I was like, man, I'm so excited to do the podcast today. And I realized it's because we did last week's episode super early in the week before I went on vacation for the weekend. And I'm just so pumped to get to like pick your brain about the format, especially with you getting to play some more. Really excited to, to hear where you're at uh, with uh, Crimson Bow. Yeah, looking forward to it as well. It's been a while. Yeah, for sure. So uh, let's get into it today. We're going to be bleeding between the lines. Um, I, I told you I was going to be hard pressed to come up with some more blood. <laughs> puns, but alas, I've got more in the books here. Uh, so I think the format is sort of settled in a way of like, you know, I think it's clear that red black is the best deck in the format, but not by much. And as people catch up to that and start drafting red and black a bit more, I want to start talking about like, what are some other decks that are just as powerful or nearly as powerful and how to get into them just like sort of do a format update style episode here uh, but before we get into that we do have some housekeeping stuff to take care of first things first is the patreon page patreon.com slash lords of limited is where you can go to give back to the show if you so choose we did announce last week that we have some patreon reward tier updates so now and this will be the first week that we'll roll that out now people are going to have early access to the episode on sundays we record sunday mornings i'll get the editing done sunday afternoon and post that baby to the patreon feed ad free so you can just get that content into your veins a day before everybody else. So that's pretty sweet. And we also have a Patreon feed bonus content. I already posted a draft log review last week. I've got a cool what's the play video all queued up for this week. Ben's going to get some stuff on there too this month. So that's going to be awesome. We're going to be rolling out two to three pieces of additional content for our uh, warrior tier patrons over there. So if any of that sounds good to you, if you just want to give back to the show, uh, because it's provided you some value over the years, or you just want to support me and Ben, all of that good stuff is found over at patreon.com slash Lords of Limited. And of course, we want to welcome our new patrons to the fold the first week that they join. So this week, we're welcoming Alexander, Johnny, David, Ian, Andrew, Rick, Joey, Adam, Bastion, IMK2, Brian, Isaac, Robert, and Kevin. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, cannot say thank you enough. And you know, I just want to reiterate, you and I were chatting before the episode, we have not prior to this really posted things to the Patreon feed. So if you're on those tiers and you want to check out that content, make sure you get in the habit of going over to the Patreon feed and seeing what's up. Yeah, for sure. Show is also brought to you in part by Channel Fireball. Channelfireball.com, best place to go for anything and everything you need magic related. And if you want a chance to win a PlayStation 5. Oh my God. So in December, every purchase on the marketplace this month is going to enter you with a chance to win a PlayStation 5. And that includes purchases that you make with code LOL. So if you want to help us and maybe get a gift for yourself or a gift for a family member or friend that plays Magic, head on over to the Channel Fireball Marketplace. In that same vein, they're also going to enter you for an Oculus Quest 2. That's one of the VR type deals. I've not done any VR. Have you? Oh, yeah, for sure. One of my friends has one. And uh, I, I, did you ever play like Guitar Hero or Rock Band or anything back in the day? Yes, I love Guitar so, Hero. So there's a game on there called Beat Saber, which is a very similar type deal where like you have these lightsabers and you're like swiping away these blocks to the beat of a song. It's like the most addictive fun thing ever. <laughs> Sweet. And they've also got that alpha break going on that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks where they're cracking two alpha starters. There's going to be 120 cards up for purchase from alpha. And every penny from that alpha break is going to go to Acres of Diamonds, a charity that helps homeless women and children. And if you're interested in one of those cards, they are available for purchase for $999.99. That is a lot happening over at ChannelFireball.com. It's the season, baby. 
It is the season. Let's talk about this arena decathlon that was spoiled this week, Ben. Yeah, somebody posted about this in the Discord, and I went and checked out the article. So I was thinking, eh, probably not for us. You know, it's going to be a mixture of limited and constructed. But there is a path if you want to be a limited only player through the arena decathlon. And if you are a limited and constructed player, rejoice. I think this event sounds super (laughs) sweet. So for the podcast, we're just going to talk about the limited path that you can take through it. So basically what it does is during the month of December and into January, there are sections of days where there are events, Uh, much like a decathlon, there are multiple different events. So I'm going to go over the limited ones from December 18th through 20th. You can play Phantom Sealed with three packs each of mid and bow. December 21st through 23rd, you can do Vow Best of Three Phantom Draft. December 24th through 26th, Zendikar Rising Phantom Bot Draft. And then after Christmas, December 27th through 29th, there are no limited events in that one. And then from December 30th through January 1st, it's Strixhaven Phantom Turbo Draft, which is Bot Draft with the emblem that you start with where all your spells cost five less to cast. So basically, you earn these tokens. And if you earn three unique tokens, so there's four different limited events. If you earn three unique tokens from those by going 7x or 3o or whatever the thing is, you get a token. And then if you get three unique ones, you get entered into the Arena Decathlon Finals, which are on Saturday, January 8th. And rejoice again. The format is limited. It's best of three arena cube. So um, there's going to be a few alchemy cards in there and some nerfs. So it should be a sweet take on the, the arena cube. And I'm hoping to get queued up. Yeah, it's really cool. I don't think I would have an incentive to play in these except for like getting to qualify for a best of three arena cube thing that can then get you, you know, the prizes because these entry fees aren't that huge, right? It's like 2k gold or 400 gems for each event entered, which is like pretty small in comparison to what you pay for, you know, regular draft. And so you get some good prizes. I mean, it's not huge, but if you go at least three wins in the finals, you get three draft tokens, which is nothing. And if you get the max wins, you do get a full set of Kamigawa Neon Dynasty to your arena account, which is pretty sweet. Yeah, for sure. I think I will be trying to do this. Sounds like fun. And, you know, I'm going to be free over Christmas break. And I would imagine most people will have some time off during the holidays to maybe take advantage of this decathlon. I think it's great timing on Wizards Park and a cool event. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This kind of mix up when a format has sort of settled, like in a few weeks, I think is going to be a going to be a nice little respite from Crimson Vow. Um, Speaking of Vow. Let's do a little big picture format updates. We, you know, because we recorded before the arena draft open last weekend, which we both participated in, we didn't have a chance to talk about it. It was super fun. I'm really glad that we had some high level draft events on arena. Um, It took me three entries to qualify day one, and then I scrubbed out one, two, day two. I had a pretty bad draft, like started with double bleed dry, never saw any bombs, ended up with like basically black, little bit of green, splashing child of the pack, which was just like not. That's just a deck that's never going to get max wins in that kind of event. Um, so I, I scrubbed out one, too. How did your weekend go? It was awesome. First, I just want to shout out the fact that the tournament is asynchronous because on Saturday I had to set up for a band concert. And then on Sunday, I actually had a band concert smack dab in the middle of the day. So if this had been a GP, I just wouldn't have been able to participate, which is yeah. really cool that there is an event like this that's high level that feels stakes. You know, I had the same, you know, adrenaline, cold, clammy hands, whatever that I would get <laughs> for day two of a GP. And it's not quite the same thing, you know, not quite the same level of prestige as a GP. But I mean, if you get that cash, like I think it's probably better EV yeah. than a GP is. I mean, isn't top prize for a GP not much more than $2,500? Like, I don't remember, but it was like final 4K or something for those uh, those top spots. Right, but it's really hard to, I mean, top 32 through top 64 is tough at a GP, and you're getting what? 
250 dollars yeah. something like yeah, that you're, you're barely making your like hotel and you know travel fees back so i think that's a hugely maybe underrated or under talked about aspect of the arena opens but really want to just say that that is awesome so for me yeah. i queued up on bullet number one on day one with a very good almost mono white splashing a few black cards deck wield a traveling minister baby was a good draft <laughs> yeah those traveling ministers just whipping around the table a lot of the time and then day two, I drafted an almost mono red deck and had outs to play great cards of any color through the whole draft. Never really saw any of them and ended up pairing a few black cards with my red and had a good deck. I felt great about the draft. Maybe could have made a few decisions differently, but would have ended up in a similar deck. Played some really tight games and went three and two. Nice. So in terms of drafts like day in and day out, I will say that I feel like we're in, I don't know, Theros Beyond Death, something. So we've got some meta shift happening here where Black has seemed, I would say, pretty darn overdrafted in the last week plus two weeks of the format. Um, and as such, I'm wary of starting with bleed dry or bleed dry adjacent cards because I don't want to fight over the color for premium commons. And I think what's happening a lot of the time is like people are opening a blood vial purveyor, a dreadfeast demon, a tox reel, and then they have real incentives to cut black hard. And so I don't want to compete with those people because I can't. And I, I will end up, you know, scraping together stuff. Whereas if you do open those kinds of cards, you know, you can be happy with you know, I only have the the desperate farmers and the ragged recluses, and I've got a gift of fangs. You can still get a good black deck with like commons five through nine or whatever, but I don't think you want to be there without that incentive. What are your thoughts on that? I completely agree. And actually, to reach back to a conversation you and I had in a prior episode, I actually am on both Flame Blessed Bolt and a Braid over Bleed Dry now after playing a little bit more. I just think you had played more than I had, and I'm finally caught up. All right, sweet. So is that uh, because of color? Because I think red is, I think, considered the best color in the format. That's where I'm at for sure. And so is that a color consideration, or is that also just like cheap interaction consideration? I think more of a cheap interaction consideration. I'm sort of at the point in the format where I feel very comfortable. I feel like I understand how all the decks operate and how the matchups go, and I know when I'm red green against blue white, I need to be trying to do this and my opponent's trying to do that and all that other stuff. And I've just sort of come to the place that bombs are the cost of doing business in the format. Mm-hmm. And I'm not as worried about trying to stack my deck to beat bombs because you don't play against bombs that much. I think I just had a run where I played against them more than I was supposed to. And I think the cheap interaction lets you win the matchups quicker. So maybe you get to a point you know, where you can get the game heavily slanted in your favor before the bomb even comes down. Or it's also much better in the matchups where you aren't playing against the bombs or whatever. And I think if you stack up on bleed dries in the four slot, it's just not as good as the cheap interaction. Yeah, I I think I totally agree with that. And I will say like, even the bombs that exist, there's just so few that have like a sinking feeling. Like I, I mean, Glorious Sunrise comes to mind because I'm just so rarely, you know, playing Artifact or Enchantment Removal. You know, Toxrill has a sinking feeling, but a lot of the bombs like make me scooch a little bit. I'm like, oh, you played a Blood Vial Purveyor on turn four. How am I going to beat this? What's my, like, now I got to have a puzzle to solve here. And I find that a really a boon to the format more often than it is a like feel bad for the format. Yeah, the most egregious rare for me in the format is Wedding Announcement followed by Halana Alina, I think. Yes, I agree with that. 
Um, I, th- I think that's totally true. And Helena Elena, I think, is the number one according to the stats. And speaking of the stats, I think it's important to note here, you have this a little bit later, but we'll talk about it now. Uh, a little data update here that Rakdos is still holding the top spot in terms of the best deck at 56.6% win rate. Most games played by a huge margin, so I think that makes it still the best deck. But right behind it on its tails are is it at 56.1% and Azorius at 56%, which brings me to my next point that I've been ending up in blue-white blue red and blue black a lot and then when i'm ending up green i'm trying to be red green a lot of the time and of my past whatever 20 30 drafts maybe not that many maybe 20 drafts of the format those are my most played decks by far yes that's where i've been ending up recently as well i haven't done a ton of drafts this week but the five or so that i've done i've not ended up in black and the last thing i want to throw out here before we get to a round table is uh we haven't quite put a stamp on this. We've alluded to it that this format is mostly about micro synergies and not macro synergies, right? Sometimes you do get a red green wolf werewolf deck or a blue white max auras deck or whatever. But a lot of the times, as we've talked about, it's about getting deep into a color and just pairing, you know, a color that is open with another color that is open and then finding just like small synergies between them. So for example, like recently I had a, a sort of offbeat red green deck that ended up playing a couple mulches, which then made my retrieve better. And then I wanted to put a a wedding invitation or two in there because that, again, made my retrieve better, but also just like let me sneak in giant, you know, green werewolves through to get in for like the last six points of damage or whatever. Or, you know, I've been doing a lot of the red, blue, or sometimes red, black, but more often red, blue, steal and exploit with bloody betrayal plus like stitched assistant and repository scob. All three of those cards go super late in draft a lot of the time. And so that can be like a fun package in blue, red. So those are the sorts of like synergies I'm looking for in the format rather than like big overarching, like my deck is blue, red spells or whatever. Right. That's what I was going to clarify the difference between micro and macro synergy. If somebody is not familiar with that macro synergy would be every single card in your deck working toward a very focused goal, like super hyper synergistic and micro synergistic would be packages of synergy or pockets of synergy, you know, to borrow from Alex. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I do think like when we talk about blue white, I do think that is a macro synergy deck at its best, but certainly can then be just a micro synergy deck as well. All right, Ben, you want to take us through this sweet draft log you have for us? Yeah, this is one of my drafts that I did recently. So if you want to take a seat at the round table, pack one, pick one, you see the following cards as options. It's a pretty junky pack. Yeah. Best common in the pack is probably Heron of Hope, three and a white for the two, three flyer. If you would gain life, you gain that much life plus one instead. You can pay one and a white to give it lifelink until end of turn. Baneslayer Angel is more affectionately <laughs> known in the format. Yeah. And then maybe like a grizzly ritual, you could maybe make a case for five and a black sorcery, destroy target creature, planeswalker, create two blood tokens. But I honestly am hoping to run one or no copies of that in most of my black decks. I agree. I'm I'm never first picking that, especially in this current meta of like black is overdrafted. And then red best commons, probably fearful villager, two and a red for a two, three menace, stay bound. And then on the backside, it's four, three menace. That card has been impressive. Yeah, I think it might be overplayed at the moment for my money. Um... But I do like it in a lot of spots. And then moving on to the uncommons, pretty junky. Again, there's a Soul Cipher board. There's a Cartographer's Survey. You're not taking either of those ever. There's Ancient Lumbernaut, two black green for the one four. Each creature you control with toughness greater than its power assigns combat damage equal to its toughness rather than its power. And then Rare, also kind of meh. Investigator's Journal, two mana for the artifact. Uh, it enters the battlefield with a number. It enters the battlefield with a number of suspect counters on it equal to the greatest number of creatures a player controls. Then you can pay two tap, remove a suspect counter from it to draw a card, and you can pay two and sacrifice itself to draw a card. So, what are your thoughts on Investigator's Journal? Have you seen that in play at all yet? 
I have not seen it in play, but it looks clunky as sin to me. So it enters the battlefield with maybe two to three counters on it in a good uh-huh. scenario. And sure. then you're paying six mana in installments to draw two cards or eight mana in installments to draw three cards. That doesn't sound great to me. So the thing that I just want to make sure that everybody knows about this card is that you always get one additional draw, right? So if your opponent has, if whatever, if the max number is two creatures, you play this, you get two counters on it, and then you get to do those two, and then you'll get an additional draw after that. So it has the potential to draw you three cards. Now, maybe it's the style of decks that I play because I'm basically never playing aggro decks in this format. Um, and, beca- and perhaps it's best of three is slower than best of one. I don't know. But I have found, I haven't played it myself. Maybe I've played it once, but I've seen it on the opposite side of the battlefield and in long games i'm like oh no you're about to draw three to four cards more than me this game and that is going to bury me in card advantage and i'm very happy when i'm red and having a braid for it but i think the card it's situational like not every deck wants it obviously but i think some decks do decks that don't have access to blood maybe decks that don't have access to card draw maybe so i think it's i don't know it's it's a card that i like and I felt threatened by, but I've not played with much myself. That makes sense. I ended up on Ancient Lumberknot here. It sounds like you would have taken Investigator's Journal. I think so. Or I would rather take Heron of Hope than Ancient Lumberknot. I just, I, I don't really want to be green. I don't really want to end up black green for sure, certainly in this stage of the format. Like I want to, if I'm going to end up in black green, I would like to be sure that it's going to be open rather than take a card like this early and then you know, fingers crossed that black isn't super cut and I get the good green cards. It's a lot of ifs, I think. Right. My thought process with taking Ancient Lumberknot here was this pack is a blank and I'm going to start my draft from pack one, pick two was yeah. basically my thought process. And if that's my thought process and you're saying Investigator's Journal is sometimes playable and sometimes even good, I probably should have taken that with the same thought process. Yeah, like I think a black green deck honestly would like Investigator's Journal, depending on how like aggressive you are, you know, like, but you know, a deck that probably maybe, maybe doesn't have a lot of blood and in the black cards that you get and green doesn't provide card advantage. I think journal can can kind of get you there. But anyway. All right. So pack one pick two, we've got an ancient lumber not in the pile, maybe should have been an Investigator's Journal. But again, going in there with no color considerations towards ancient lumber not. So pack yeah. one pick two, see the following cards as options. At common, there's a Kindly Ancestor, two and a white for a two, three lifelink, disturb, one and a white, as well as a Flame Blessed Bolt, red, instant, deals two damage to target creature or Planeswalker. If that creature or Planeswalker die this turn, you exile it instead. In the uncommons, there's all three still here, so your neighbor took the rare. There's Undead Butler, the one in a black, one, two, that when it ETBs, you mill three, and then when it dies, you can exile it to return target creature card from your graveyard to your hand. There's also Hero's Downfall, one black, black, instant, destroy target creature or Planeswalker. And Brian Comer, Brian Comer, attorney at law, as he's more <laughs> affectionately known, and one blue white for the one one. And when he enters the battlefield or becomes the target of an aura spell, create a one one white spirit creature token with flying and has disturb one in a white to be an aura. Brian bound gift that does the same thing. Uh, so a few things here. One, I'm writing my last article of the year for CFB Pro, and it's going to be a sort of like best worst limited 2021 style piece, which has been really fun to like come up with categories and, you know, winners or honorable mentions or whatever. And my very hot take is that Heroes Downfall is the worst reprint of 2021. I mean, it's insane that this is not as good as it should be, right? 
it's insane that so it's obviously not the worst reprint of all the reprints that happened in 2021. But my argument is, how crazy is it that this is downshifted? Like when we first saw this in Theros, we were like, oh my god, three mana, destroy target creature or planeswalker at rare. Like that's just so efficient. Now it's been downshifted to uncommon, and it's worse than parasitic grasp and the common removal spell bleed dry, in my opinion. Yeah, and some of that is the context of the format. Sure. In a world where bombs are running around as much as they are, you would think this would be premium premium, and it's just not. It's just not. It was just just kind of crazy. So anyway, um, not to say that it's a bad card or anything, but I do think worse than Flame Blessed Bolt. And if we're thinking about, hey, this is just pack one, pick one, right? As you said, my draft starts pack one, pick two. For my money, I would take Brian Comer here. I think Brian Comer is the best non-rare for the blue-white deck. Once you have Brian Comer, it makes so many other like kind of junky or situational picks a lot better, specifically nurturing presence, which you can get quite late. Um, and I think blue-white is, as we said, you know, it's if it's not the best deck in the format, it's certainly, you know, knocking at the door of best deck in the format. And in the current meta, I think I would happily take it here. Yeah, I actually ended on Hero's Downfall, and I think now I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, like I opened this draft log and I was like, huh, I'd take Brian Comer pack one pick two. And it's just funny, you know, this is, draft is probably a week old. And it's funny how much your opinions change over the course of a week and playing and just what's happening in the meta. So I agree, would have taken Brian Comer pack one pick two, but I did take Heroes Downfall. So moving on to pack one pick three, even though I took Heroes Downfall, let's say that we have Brian Comer. So we've got an ancient Lumbernaut and a Brian Comer. And you see the following cards as options commons there's nothing great that sticks out there's a nurturing presence but it's pretty early to take that card that's one in a white for the enchant creature whenever it enters the battlefield under your control this creature gets plus one plus one until end of turn and whenever it enters the battlefield it also makes a one one spirit creature token with flying so if you're putting that on brine comer you're essentially casting half of lingering souls which is pretty powerful yeah for sure yeah when you put this on brine comer and it makes two one one flyers that's just like chef's kiss right there and i don't know that there's any other commons I would take. The next best one is probably like a Desperate Farmer, Tuna Black for the 2-2 lifelink. And whenever another creature dies, you flip it into a 4-3 lifelink. And then in the uncommons, there's Wandering Mind, which has been premium. One blue-red for the 2-1 flyer. When ETBs look at the top six cards of your library, and you can reveal a non-creature, non-land card from among them and put it into your hand. And then there's also Foreboding Statue, which has been, I think, pretty good. Three mana for the 1-2, taps to add a mana of any color. You put an omen counter on it. Beginning of your end step, if you have three or more omen counters on it, you untap it and then transform it into a 5-5 that adds one man of any color at the beginning of your pre-combat main phase. Yeah, it's so interesting. Like, I see this card on the battlefield and I often think, okay, this is going to be a problem, especially when it comes down on turn three. I don't splash in this format almost ever, and so it becomes a lot less good in my mind when I don't care about it for fixing. But I will say, like, if I end up with whatever, a deck where I've got premium five drops, like four premium five drops, I'm really thrilled to have a foreboding statue in my deck to sort of bridge that gap from three to five. Absolutely. So what do you like here between foreboding statue and wandering mind? I think I'd go, you know, if we've got Lumbernaut Brinecomber, I think I'd just go three for three with gold on commons here. Well, I'm not thrilled to start my draft with Lumbernaut because I think blue red is again, often underdrafted and quite good. I think I'd happily take the wandering mind here and just keep my options open in terms of I'm happy to take high risk gold cards in decks that I want to end up in. And so I'd rather take the wandering mind here over the foreboding statue, which I think is defensible in terms of it's colorless, keeps you open, etc. Yeah, I actually settled on the foreboding statue. And I think again, I'm going to swing your way with wandering mind <laughs> must have been late at night after a long day at school. <laughs> I did this wow. draft. Or maybe I just got more suckered in by the lumber knot than I realized, you know? Yeah. 
I mean, I think that's totally reasonable. Like, I think when that deck comes together, it's good. I just think, as we've talked about before, it just requires so many pieces. They have to be at uncommon. And like, it's a little easily disruptible in terms of like, if they kill your Lumbernaut, your deck sort of falls apart. And I think if you have Lumbernaut Hero's Downfall, which is what I actually had in this draft, it's a lot more appealing to take the Foreboding Statue here yes. than it is the Wandering Mine. But once you've gone Lumbernaut Brinecomber, I think you're fine to take Wandering Mine and just see what comes. You have two very powerful gold uncommons and then kind of a whiff on the first pack and you can just see what comes because there's no signals yet, right? Rears have been missing, uncommons have been missing. So I like taking the Wandering Mind here and seeing what comes. So we've got Lumbernaut, Brinecomber, Wandering Mind. I just want to take a quick pause here and ask you, what would you say to someone? Because I'm sure we have listeners out there who are like, this seems early to take gold cards. Don't I want to take like monocolored cards and then find out what, you know, we've been championing for weeks, right? Find the open color in pack one, not the open color pair. So what's the defense for taking Brinecomber or Wandering Mind this early? I think the delta between how good they are and how good the rest of the pack is. So we've talked a lot about how the commons are pretty flat or drop off sharply, right? After Flame Blast, a Bolt, a Braid, Traveling Minister, those cards kind of hang with the power level of the uncommons and the rares. But then you hit a point in the commons where it's pretty interchangeable. And most of the commons we're seeing in the pack are at that power level of where they are interchangeable. And these uncommons are enough better that it's worth taking the risk of taking the pick and not getting a chance to play it because you never are short on playables in this format. Like the, the commons are C's, but there are a billion C's. So <laughs> yeah, you exactly. never, you can pivot around as much as you want and you will always make playables. So I think it's worth being aggressive when the rest of the packs are so weak here. Right. So super contextual, right? If Ben is seeing a flame blessed bolt or an abrade in the pack with wandering mind, you're definitely taking the cheap interaction there, right? Yes. A hundred percent. Yeah, so it's just about the context of the packs here and the delta between the power of the cards. So I think important to note that. So what's going on in pick four? Pick four, see the following cards as options. It's not great. Again, there's a Heron Blessed Geist. That's the four and a white, three, three flyer. You can pay three and a white exile from your graveyard if you control an enchantment and only as a sorcery to make two one one white spirit creature tokens with flying. I have to remind myself that that's basically a blue white gold card. It, you really don't want to play that if you can't reliably have the ability to get two one ones out of the yard yes 100 percent. there's also a blood fountain black for the artifact when etbs you make a blood token and you can pay three and a black tap sack it to return up to two target creature cards from your graveyard to your hand there's a soul cipher board <laughs> question mark i mean no, like, no this is a bad card's pack yeah soul cipher board is terrible yeah this is a really bad pack makes total sense given what you actually have here which is lumber not downfall and statue that you just stay black here and take a blood fountain and actually you know, if you're pushing down black green, potentially a card like Blood Fountain is really good because of how disruptable black green is, that it's really important that if they kill your lumber knot or your catapult or whatever, that you can get it back. Yes, that is what I landed on. Moving on to pack one, pick five, much better pack here. You see the following cards as options. There's some white flowing. Sigarda's Imprisonment, two and a white for the aura enchant creature. Enchanted creature can't attack or block, and you can pay four and a white to exile enchanted creature and make a blood token as well as Kindly Ancestor, two and a white for the 2-3 with lifelink, disturb, one and a white. Best black card is Courier Bat, two and a black for the 2-2 flyer, and when it ETBs, if you gained a life this turn, return up to one target creature card from your graveyard to your hand. And I think those are the only things in consideration. There's a rare and two uncommons missing from the pack, so someone has taken a common over 
Sagarda's imprisonment. So I think that is a little signally at this point. Yeah, I think pick five, seeing the imprisonment plus the ancestor, which is, spoiler, a mover up for us this week. Yeah, I like just taking the best card here. And certainly this looks a lot better with you having Brian Comer in your pile if you had taken that pick two. Yeah, but I think you're still doing it here even with the route that I took through the draft. Yeah, for sure. You can end up black white. You could end up splashing lumber knot depending on the fixing that you get. Like you still have a really good open lane in terms of you know what happens in the rest of this pack, and then early in pack two as well. Yeah, and I do end up moving into blue. So pack one, pick six, took a wretched throng out of a very weak pack. Took a skywarp scob, pick seven out of a super weak pack. Pick eight, get a lunar rejection, which is by far one of the better cards we've seen. And it's super late. This is one in a blue for the instant cleave three in a blue return target wolf or werewolf creature to its owner's hand for the one in a blue. Or if you pay the full four, you can return any creature to its owner's hand and then you draw a card nine, chill the grave, sell and tumor, we wheel a nurturing presence. So just kind of feel like blue white is open. End up opening cemetery protector pack two pick one which is the two white, white, three, four mythic rare with flash. I cannot remember that this rare has flash. I play it <laughs> so suboptimally. <laughs> uh, and when it enters the battlefield, you exile a card from a graveyard. And whenever you play a land or cast a spell, if it shares a card type with the exiled card, create a one, one white human creature token. Worth noting also, if you've not played with this, it's not landfall. You have to exile a land to make your lands do the thing. I kind of misread it the first time I played it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these cards really incentivize you to pick up an evolving wild so you can have that potential like, oh, I'm gonna exile that and then I can start to have landfall one ones. Yeah, and then just kind of blue and white were open, got a Brian Comer pack three. So it would have been even more rewarded had we taken the Brian Comer pack one pick two. But I think ultimately, just navigated the draft off of, you know, kind of a rocky start with some weak packs into a very good blue white deck that ended up going seven one. Yeah, the deck looks great. It's sort of emblematic, I think, of what a good blue-white deck looks like, which we'll talk about uh, briefly in just a little bit. But before we get into the archetypes we want to talk about, let's go through our movers up and movers down list from uh, the format this week. Yeah, first up for me is Kindly Ancestor. This has been on a roller coaster. So yeah. it's the, the Tuna White 2-3 Lifelink. This was pegged as my top white common heading into the set. And normally I love a card like this. I just love Lifelink as a limited mechanic and suiting up Lifelink on some big monster after you've barely stabilized, you know, at two life or something. And it was not anywhere near as good as I expected. And I think I probably punished it too much for not being what I wanted it to be, which was, mm -hmm. you know, something as powerful as Traveling Minister. And I think I've just come around to it being a very good card. And I think matchup dependent a little bit. It's very good if your opponent's trying to be aggressive and fine if your opponent is not trying to be aggressive. And I think that's ultimately lands it at a C plus for me. Yeah, I think so. It's just like, this is the kind of card, I think white, black and red I mostly get to do this because I think blue and green, while I think blue is the third best color for myself, I end up in blue a lot. Blue's commons are largely contextual and really depend on like where you're landing in terms of what your deck is trying to do and what cards you want from it. Whereas white, I'm just like, look, it's minister and then it's, you know, either retribution or imprisonment. And then Heron of Hope, I think, is a clear number four. And then maybe curve consideration, you're thinking Drog Skull Infantry and then Kindly Ancestor. And so like Ancestor is what, the fifth, sixth best common in white? That doesn't mean it's bad, right? It just means that white has an insanely deep roster of good commons. Yes. Uh, next up is Wedding Invitation. This is the two-mana artifact. ETBs draws a card, and you can tap sack it to make target creature unblockable until end of turn. And if that creature was a vampire, it gains lifelink until end of turn. I, I think this card 
I think it looked like junk. And I do think this has now perhaps skewed a little too high with, I think, everybody thinking that, you know, every deck wants a copy of Wedding Invitation, which I think is definitely not right. But I think you want to look for spots where it's good. You know, I talked about it being good with Retrieve as, you know, a non-creature permanent that you can get back with that card where that's situational. Certainly it's at its best in red-based decks with Kessig Flame Breather and Falconrath Celebrants because it not only is a cantripping way to trigger the Flame Breathers, but then that huge life point swing with an unblockable lifelinking Celebrants is pretty darn good in the late game. And I will say I've played with this much more in the last week or two, and you definitely want to be aggressive. Like its best use is when you're pushing damage. Like it's not great if you're in an aggro mirror or whatever, and you want to gain some life with your vampires. Like that is not where it shines. You definitely want to use this to close out the game after getting in some chip damage. I think that is its best purpose. Yeah, agreed. Next up is Nurturing Presence. And maybe I was just a little slow on the uptake on this card, but that's the enchantment that you put on a creature. And when it ETBs, it makes a 1-1 spirit with flying and then gives the creature the ability whenever another creature enters the battlefield in your control, it gets plus one, plus one until end of turn. This is just outstanding in blue-white, specifically in tandem with Brian Comer, but very, very, very good in that deck. And I just kind of previously in my head was eh, kind of junky, but I have been very impressed with the card in blue white and think you actively probably want almost as many copies of it as you can get in the best blue white decks with you know two to three brine combers or whatever it kind of depends the number if you don't have a lot of brine combers but very good in blue white i think much like blue white in mid blue white in vow wants to be aggressive and it's it's weird i think we all sort of got baited again by going oh it's just like a deck full of two for ones so it's a grindy deck you know we all thought blue white disturb well you have all these creatures are two for ones so it's a grindy deck it's like no that just lets you push damage and play like an 18, 19 creature deck that has all these two for ones built into it. So much like aggro decks of the past with these sort of like flood protection mechanics like adventure or whatever, it lets you, you know, you just know you're never going to flood because you always have stuff to do with your mana and you can push your advantage, etc. Nurturing Presence is just great for that. Like you're talking about it with Brinecomber. That's great. But like Turn one lantern bearer, turn two slap a nurturing presence on that lantern bearer. And now that's getting that's hitting in probably for two points of damage in the air every turn. Plus you made another one one flyer. Like unless they're gonna drop that one four reach on turn three, it's really hard to contend with that. Right. They have to deal with it probably at a mana disadvantage, and then you still get the back half of the lantern bearer. Next up, we've got Hookhand Mariner. This is three and a green for a four-four at common. That's the daybound side. And then nightbound side is a six-four, and it can't be blocked by creatures with power two or less. I would say shout out to Big Data for turning me onto this card earlier in the format than I think I would have been, as like, oh, this is, you know, this was occupying, I think, the number three slot for a while in terms of game and hand win rate for green. I think it's now fourth behind Weaver of Blossoms. Um, but really it's up there. Keyword big is very important in the format for toughness, I think is the magic number in this format, thanks to a braid uh, and parasitic grasp. Also, this is really hard to deal with. And oftentimes if you are playing like, you know, blue reds, small creatures or blue white disturb, you don't often have large bodies. And this flipping threatens to end the game in a hurry. Yeah, this card is huge. I think personally, I would have this as my number one green common at the moment. I've been very, very, very impressed with the card. Four mana, four, four is big and it's a huge threat when it flips. I could buy that for sure. I, I have found Wolf Strike, which is currently the number one. I found Wolf Strike to be awkward and oftentimes like it's, you know, it's just what we get from these fight spells are just like fingers crossed that you don't blow me out or that like I have to time this just right, blah, blah, blah. Like it's really, really hard, uh, I think, to have that card be great all of the time. 
Yeah, I agree. Next up is Ragged Recluse, one in a black for the 2-1. And at the beginning of your end step, if you discarded a card this turn, you flip it into a 3-3, three, three, some sort of witch that whenever it attacks, you drain <laughs> one and gain one. Yeah, this card's great. And obviously Blood makes this uh, do good work, but so does my boy Selhoff and Tumor. And it pairs very nicely with this card. Like, sometimes this is hard to turn on. And I think with how much people understand how good Blood is these days... It's perhaps a little less good, but still, when this flips, you're just like, you got that for two mana? That's not fair. Right. If you can reliably flip it, I think it is premium. Next up is a a surprise for me. So this is Infestation Expert. This is five mana for three, four. When it enters the battlefield, you make a one, one. Or when it attacks, you make a one, one. That's the day bound side. On the night bound side, it comes in as a four, five or flips to a four, five. And when it enters the battlefield or attacks, you make two one, one insect creature tokens instead. This is the top performing game in hand win rate uncommon in green. Full stop. Yeah, I have been on the non data version of this card. I just don't <laughs> I still just don't check 17 lands that much. It's not enjoyable for me. Mm-hmm. But I have gone on the same journey with this card that I went on with Hoarding Ogre, where like the first five times I lost to it, I was like, God, I'm just losing to this terrible card. And then finally just realized, oh, it's good. And I finally started picking a little bit and had a chance to play with it yesterday. And it was as awesome for me as it has been for my opponents. And I think it's just a good card in green and should pull you into green a little bit. Yeah, I think that's true. I, you know, I did not have this on my list of non rares or whatever, the few uncommons that pull me into green. I didn't have this on my list. And I think hearing you talk about it, my experience is playing against it, seeing the data represented as such a, an overperformer. I think this has to make that list as well. Speaking of green uncommons that are nuts, Dormant Grove. Like, we were high on this before. This just keeps moving up for me. It's three and a green for the enchantment. At the beginning of combat on your turn, you can put a plus one plus one counter on a creature you control. Then if that creature has toughness six or greater, you flip it, and it becomes a three six creature with vigilance that gives all of your other creatures vigilance as well. I will just say that this is a this is a difficult card to play. Like, knowing you know, that that tension of how long can I keep this in enchantment to keep buffing my creatures before I want this to flip? Like, am I forced to make it flip? Like, do I want to attack? Like, it's a really, it's a complex card to play, which is one of the things I like about it, but it's just also incredibly powerful. Yes, 100%. Speaking of incredibly powerful, Spike Ripsaw, tuna green for the artifact equipment that gives your creature plus three plus three and whenever the creature attacks, you can sacrifice a forest to give it trample and it has an equip cost of three. This card was a house against us in the team draft from Mm -hmm. LSV having it. And it just is plate armor with, I think, some upside with the sacrificing of forest hex. I played a deck last night that was three flame blessed bolts, two abrades, two spiked ripsaws and red and green filler. And I trophied with it thanks to the power of the removal and the spiked ripsaws. Yeah, well, it's it's, again, these like micro synergy things, you know, once you've got a card like Ripsaw in your red green deck, like how I mean, already Voldaren Epicure, I think, though, you have it on our movers down list, spoiler alert, which I'm excited to hear why and defend the honor of my one drop friend. (laughs) But also, when you've got that, you're just like, oh, now my one mana one one not only makes a blood token and deals a damage, which I always forget. But now I've got this like irrelevant body that I can't wait to slap a Ripsaw on and start beating in for four points of damage, you know? Yes. Yeah, it's a very good use of the Ripsaw. And the last thing on our movers up list is Sporeback Wolf. That's one in a green for the 2-2 Wolf. And as long as it's your turn, it gets plus O plus 2. I've been very happy with this card in green decks that want to be aggressive. 
it's just impossible to block in the first two to three turns that it comes down. And I think when you do block it, it plays super well with combat tricks because it doesn't get blown out by things like a braid or flame blast bolt. It's just a very good beater in a green aggressive deck. Yeah. Well, let's get to these movers down. This first one, I agree with. We've got Blood Petal Celebrant here. This is one in red for the 2-1. Uh, whenever it attacks, it gains first strike. And when it dies, you get a blood token. I think, you know, Alex has been championing this for a while that like the one drops are good in this format and the two drops largely don't matter. And I think Celebrant sort of, you know, falls under that category. Slash, I feel like with in terms of blood, blood up front is better than conditional blood. I often have, you know, belligerent guest versus blood servitor. And I will take blood servitor over guest almost all the time because I would just rather know that I'm going to get blood from my creature rather than like, oh, but I have to attack and then get it if they don't block. Like obviously the ceiling on belligerent guest is much higher as a 3-2 trample when it deals damage to an opponent you get a blood but sometimes you don't get the blood out of that card and i don't like that right and i think blood petal celebrant just is terrible at playing defense which is not a great place to be in general and then it also gets invalidated pretty quickly on offense by a one three or a one Mm -hmm. four and then you're in a spot where you have to use a trick or something to push it through and that's just not a great place to be i've not been very happy with the card I agree. All right. Talk to me about I've been championing turn one blood for so long, Voldaren Epicure and Blood Fountain, and they are on your movers down list, Ben. (laughs) They are. I've stabbed you in the back. I'm sorry. Oh, my goodness. All right. Tell me what's what's wrong with these cards. So I've played these a fair amount prior to me shifting off of red black decks. I think, you know, prior to this last week, I played red black a bunch and probably ended up there more than I should. And I think both of these cards don't necessarily pull their weight. I think a lot of times in red black specifically, I think this is more blood fountain in red black in my mind Mm -hmm. than it is blood fountain in general. But I think a lot of decks with blood fountain in them don't necessarily need the recursion. Like they want to get the game over with before you want to spend four mana on the blood fountain. Like that's just such a long, it's almost two turn cycles before you get the creatures back from blood fountain. And I think you have to take that into account when building your deck and including the blood fountain. So I just think slamming blood fountain in every black deck that is, you know, depending on where it is on the aggro mid range control spectrum can be different. And I think you want different things from blood fountain in different types of decks. I, I agree with you. I think I, I early in the format was like, oh, I'm just jamming like two blood fountains in every black deck. And that is not where I'm at because I do think it's just quite slow and you don't you really just so few games you have time to crack two fountains. Um, but I do think what one blood fountain pulls its weight in most black decks. I, I would push back in aggressive black decks, especially if your cards are interchangeable. What black decks are aggressive? Black white's not aggressive. Blue black is not aggressive. Like it can be tempo-y, but like you're trying to get exploit value. I think blue black is more of a control deck. Black green, I think can be aggressive, but isn't. And black red, I think like sure can be aggressive, but part of the power of that deck is that, you know, it gets to six lands and then it's just never flooding because of all the blood tokens. So like I'm at, just for my money, I just don't think aggro decks are that good in this format, save for like blue, white and red green, I guess. So I just don't think black is that aggressive in the format is all I'm trying to That's say. That's fair. But there are some aggressively slanted red black decks where you sure. could or would leave this on the sideboard. Can I sell you on that? You can sell me on that. Yes. Okay. And then similarly, Voldar and Epicure, I just have found that in my mind, just from everyone talking about it, 
I had it in my mind as a good card. And I think you want to make sure that you have some way to make use of the 1-1 body, whether that's through things like exploiting the 1-1 body or suiting it up with a spiked ripsaw like you were alluding to or something along those lines. But just including it as a 1-1 that makes some blood is not quite enough for me, I don't think. I agree with that. But like, I feel like if you end the if you have Voldaire and Epicures and then you end the draft with no way to utilize those bodies, that's on you. Like... You had you had your shot to grab a knife or a ripsaw or exploit or lantern bearers to suit them up or whatever. Like I think you have many opportunities across many of uh, color pairs or all the color pairs to get value out of it. You just got to look for it. That's that micro synergy stuff we were talking about. Yes, I agree. But I think this is something where just to champion maybe people that don't play magic as much as you or Alex. And I'm in that boat at this point, right? Like a uh-huh. new job, I'm playing four to five drafts a week, which is probably still more than the average person, I think. So I hadn't played with Epicure that much, but I heard you talking about it, heard Alex talking about it, heard LSV talking about how good it was. And so in my arena open day two deck, I had three of them and I was thinking, great, but I didn't have a lot of ways to make use of the body. And I think that's something that you miss out on not being a content creator or maybe not playing with the cards as much that, and now it is obvious to me after playing with the card, oh, I need to do those things also to make this card good. It's not just default good. Yeah, that's fair. And that's probably, that's also on the content creators for just saying, this card is good, period, full stop, tweet, 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 rather than saying, but here's the the whole picture about the card. Right. Last card on this movers down list I have is Vampire's Vengeance. I think even in the context of situational cards can be pitched with blood and that makes them better, etc. I have not found Vampire's Vengeance to be that good. The, the stats will disagree with me here. But I'm going to push back on that. I feel like it's good against blue-white specifically, like, and it's a powerhouse against blue-white specifically. But beyond that, it just doesn't get the job done. Like, green's creatures outclass it. Red and black have vampires. Uh, you know, white has disturb, or it doesn't kill the heron. Like, I just don't think vengeance is that good. I have literally never played with or against this card, and I'm I'm over 50 drafts deep in the format for sure. That's wild. That is, yeah, that that feels pretty crazy to me. But so I don't know if this is like, if the stats are a product of like week one, this card was nuts or something, and the stats just like can't adjust to it. I should probably just like filter dates or whatever. I never do that. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I, I think the Vampire's Vengeance is, uh, is, is pretty overrated. Yeah. All right. I'll take your word for it. All right. So to round out the episode, I think we want to talk about those decks that we alluded to, the blue decks, blue, red, blue, white, and blue, black as decks that I think we're ending up in quite a bit. So I'm going to take Is It First, which is a deck I've been really hot on from even weekend one, just, you know, experimenting with flame breathers and ancestral angers. And one of the reasons I like this deck so much and I end up in it so much is it's really versatile. So you can do like the spell-based thing with Kessig flame breathers that Beers SC talked about um, in our roundtable episode. You can get the cantrips and the removal storm chaser drake is probably at its best here assuming you get the ancestral angers but also just pairs nicely with you know your disturb auras or whatever and then you can also just do red based aggro with like you know a wolf theme hungry ridge wolves runebound wolf fearful villager lamholt raconteurs backed up by blue tempo like lunar rejection and chill of the grave and you can also focus on exploit either with like lantern bearer and voldaren epicure as or even wretched throng as your sack fodder with like stitched assistance repository scobs and diver scobs the the two commons i think just go super late stitch assistant and repository scob will often wheel which is wild to me 
Or as I talked about earlier, you can do the steal and exploit thing, get a couple bloody betrayals, which are really nice if you do end up with like, you know, you get the Epicures, you maybe get a couple celebrants, and now you have blood to either dig towards your A plus B steal and sack combo, or eh, bloody betrayals in my opening hand. This isn't very good. I'll pitch it. Maybe I get it back later with a repository scob, whatever. I haven't really done like super duper full control with like counter magic removal since i think these colors play assertively pretty well together um and i know i've been saying like oh don't play aggro that much but like i wouldn't i think assertive decks and aggro decks are sort of different um i think you can play counter spells in these decks for sure and there's a ton to do at instant speed but i think you need a reason like you know hullbreaker horror for example to be a true control deck yeah i'm a little late to the blue red party but i have played it two or three times in the last week or so and i think I agree with your take 100% that it wants to be aggressive. Like it wants to put pressure on the opponent and then you just have to decide which way you're right. putting pressure on the opponent. And I think honestly the card that is most important for the deck even more than the Kessig Flame Breather and Cantrip package is Lantern Bear. Like it's just been outstanding in blue red because it turns on all the exploit stuff in addition to just pressuring super well. Yeah, Lantern Bear I think is just an absolute house both in in I mean honestly in all Blue decks, all the blue decks we're going to talk about today. I, I, I've i drafted blue-green once or twice. Like It's not a deck that I understand at all. It's not a deck that I find myself getting into ever. But blue-white, blue-black, and blue-red just want as many lantern bears as they can get their hands on. Yes, completely agree. Red has some of the best uncommons in the set. Ballista Watcher, Alluring Suitor, Voltaic Visionary, which I feel like is underrated. This is the 2-mana 3-1, which is a stat line that is just so rare in this format. 2-mana 3-1, you can tap it to have it deal 2 damage to you. You exile a card from the top of your library. When you play a card exiled with Voltaic Visionary, you can play that card until end of turn. And then when you play a card with Voltaic Visionary, you flip it to a 4-3 that can't block. This is just ridiculous, like two for one, huge stats, a a fantastic card. Yes, completely agree. And then you also get Rending Flame, the three mana deal five. So those are just like rock solid commons. And then Blues Uncommon Department is great. Diver Scob, Biolumeg, which I know, I know, I'm sorry to keep talking about stats, Ben. Biolumeg is the second highest game in hand win rate uncommon in the set behind Blood Tithe Harvester. In the set. Wow. Yeah, Biolumeg is nuts. Don't sleep on that card. Storm Chaser Drake, Whispering Wizard. These are all phenomenal cards. The latter two, I think, really shine in blue-red. And then red obviously has a deep roster of commons, and, and blue doesn't. Like Lantern Bearer is head and shoulders above the rest. And then the rest, I would say, are contextual. Like, do you want some counter spells? Are you exploiting? So you want to be the wretched throng drafter at the table and then, you know, wheel those exploiters, whatever. Um, but just because blue's power level is, I think, lower than, you know, certainly the Mardu colors, I think that doesn't mean it's bad. And as we're, we're looking at these three blue decks, it's just about where those commons are going to be at their best. I wonder if Biolume Egg stats are so good because it's so obvious what you're supposed to do with the card and when you're supposed to include it. Like, so people just don't put it in decks where it doesn't belong as much, you know? Right. Well, the other thing that's so insane about it that I didn't really quite, you know, even even in our crash course, you had to sell me on it a little bit. I like talked through, okay, this, it does this and then this and then it's a threat, blah, blah, blah. But the insane thing about it, especially in like the steal and exploit deck or whatever, or this weird draft that I had this past week where I was like multicolor soup with like three eggs and three of the rot tide gargantuas is that it digs you towards your exploiters, right? It's like a three mana thing. And then it's like, like I'm an A plus B card and I got A and I get to scry two towards B. That's really insane. 
Yeah, certainly powerful. Next up, we're going to talk about Blue Black. I think this is maybe the best shell for a control deck in the entire format. So cards you really want to be on the lookout for, Biolumag, again, like I think this is its absolute best home. Yes. You do definitely want one to two copies of Bleed Dry in Blue Black because you want to be able to recycle it with Repository Scob. So the first copy of Bleed Dry in Blue Black is crazy important because I think Repository Scob is one of the best things you can do in the deck. Mm -hmm. Lantern Bearer, similarly, like it's just awesome here as it is everywhere because it's exploit fodder, as well as just a win condition later in the game. A lot of times you get into board states where your opponent just can't attack you because then your Lantern Bearer dies and you get to put it on a creature and make a giant flying threat and kill them. So I think you want to round out that removal suite with, you know, some stuff like Heroes Downfall or even Chill of the Grave is great to buy back with Repository Scobs because once Chill only costs two mana because you have zombies, it's very, very, very strong. And then I think you just want to use cards like Wretched Throng, Undead Butler to kind of gum up the ground early. And then if you don't get rares as finishers, which I don't think you necessarily need for blue black to be good, something like Screaming Swarm can get the job done or even just putting Lantern Bearer on a repository scob and sort of building your own Screaming Swarm. And then I think there is a niche uh, archetype in blue black that's kind of its own thing where it's blue black butts where you have, you know, maybe you get two catapult fodders and then you can sort of use that as a package or even the focus of your blue black control deck and how you're going to win that sort of thing. I also think raw card advantage is just great in blue black. So something like Thirst for Discovery where you, you know, two in a blue, draw three at instant speed, discard a land, that's great. I think counter spells may be playable here but not great. And then Shellhoffen Tumor, I think you've been championing, is very good in blue black as well. Yeah. I mean, so I just wanted to pull up because your comment about like, you know, the commons here are really, really good and synergistic in blue black. And so I had a, a trophy deck early on, you know, I feel like in the first, I don't know, couple weeks or maybe week of the format, I was like, ah, exploit seems weak. I don't really get blue black. And then I started to figure it out. Like, exploit is sometimes like the primo name of the game but i'm just looking at this trophy deck and yes it has a dreadfeast demon in it and it won me two games where it came down but otherwise this deck is like two lantern bearers two persistent specimens blood fountain two Selhoffen tumors two desperate farmers which are at their best in blue black because it's so easy to flip them two gluttonous guests two stitched assistants like we're getting consistency here right we've, we've seen time and time again consistent decks that win that have like multiple copies of commons but that this deck is just like a lean mean common fighting machine in terms of its synergy of you know discarding stuff and digging towards its bombs or its removal or rebuying whatever like it's just really really highly synergistic and a lot of these commons aren't even top commons yeah and i think one of the other cards that is not a top common that is just a house if you want to slow the game down is skywarp scob the yes. three blue blue two five flyer and when it etbs you can exile two creature cards from your graveyard if you do draw a card if this cantrips it's broken and i think even if it doesn't cantrip it's so hard as the opposing player against a Skywarp Scob to attack into this card, especially if they end up with multiple at some point. Yes. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And again, like what is Skywarp Scob? Like the 10th best blue common or something? Like you can just get these and it's really good stats. And like you said, when it actually draws you a card, which can sometimes feel awkward if you're like, well, I have a Blood Fountain or I have Disturbed stuff. Like, sure, you don't have to. But when you do, it's so good. Yep. 
Last deck we want to talk about here is I think perhaps my favorite deck or my favorite non-red-black deck in the format, which is Blue-White Disturb. Um, I have here that it feels very similar to me to how it felt in mid. You want high creature count, maximum Disturb. You want to play aggro tempo. I think Brian Comer is the best non-rare for the deck. I am not a huge fan of sweepers in this format, again, but I do think this is the best home for buy invitation only, especially if you're playing best of one. You know, I had a super high creature deck, lots of disturb. This is the deck that got me to day two in the open, and buy invitation only was an absolute monster for me. Just like having that in my opening hand just let me sculpt games where I just got, you know, clear three for ones, four for ones out of the card. Other really good uncommons, you know, it's a great home for Whispering Wizard because of Disturb. So even though you have a high creature count, you can trigger this pretty reliably. I think it's the best home for Whispering Wizard. I think Whispering Wizard's better in blue-white than it is in blue-red, which was not intuitive to me. Yeah, I can see that. I'm not sure, like, I think it's, like, different in terms of maybe flavors, like, Probably Whispering Wizard's just going to be better blue-white deck in and deck out than it is going to be in blue-red because blue-red can do a lot of different things. So I could buy that. Well, and to me, blue-white decks have played out such that, and I'm curious what your experience is, like you just clog the battlefield and then mm-hmm. win with a billion 1-1 flyers. Yeah, I think that's fair, especially you know in those best versions of the decks where you get a couple brine combers and you can really reliably do that. And that's where where nurturing presence is at its best. It's just so, so insane to drop that on a brine comber. And that, just the thing about brine comber is like your opponent's like, wait, what the heck am I supposed to do about this? I have to waste a removal spell on their derpy 1-1 and then they just get to do it all again and then I'm going to have to kill whatever they put that aura on. It's just so like keyword bad, but such a like insane engine for the deck that it really puts your opponent in a tough spot. Well, and one of the cool things about the deck too is you have so few cards that are this is a must die that you get to set your opponent up with the one in a blue. What's that card called that protects your creature? Oh, Cradle of Safety. Yeah. Cradle of Safety. You get to know when your opponent is going to try to kill the thing because you only have a few cards that they want to try to kill, like Whispering Wizard or Brian Comer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we should talk about that. That Cradle of Safety is also ridiculous in that deck just because you know, look, I want to just suit up the Brian Comer so much. And so they're going to be incentivized to kill it or else I keep getting one ones. And then once they do, they're going to be sad because you protect it and get more one ones. Um, I wanted to ask you about Hallowed Haunting. This is the mythic rare two white white enchantment. As long as you control seven or more enchantments, creatures you control have flying and vigilance. And it says whenever you cast an enchantment spell, create a white spirit cleric creature token with this creature's power and toughness are each equal to the number of spirits you control. I have had the privilege of playing with this in blue-white decks, and shout out to Beers SC who turned me on to the card. This is an insane build around for blue-white. I graded it very highly in our set review and have literally never seen it in a pack or on the battlefield since. Yeah, I've played against it once and played with it once, and it's just, it's really good. Um, So would highly recommend folks, if you have the chance to pack one, pick one this, or if you're in blue-white and you see this card, to snap it up. Again, shout out to my boy, Selhoff Entumor. This is, we haven't maybe said this yet. This is one of the blue one, three zombie. You can tap to discard a creature card to draw a card. This is just great because of disturb. Um, and especially if you end up having cards that are bomby um, or just like even a Brian Comer or a Dorothea, you know, deciding like, oh, do I want to cast this now? Or is it better for me to pitch this and slap it as an aura and get the benefit immediately, right? Maybe you have an evasive threat. They don't have any blockers for flyers and so you go okay i'd rather just discard dorothea and get start getting my like geist of saint traft for for 
angel or whatever it is, four, four flyer attacking each turn. Um, so it just gives you a lot of not only velocity, but flexibility in terms of those disturbed cards. I would say similarly to lantern bear in that same vein, you know, something that like we were talking about with Voldar and Epicure, like needing ways to make the body relevant to mm-hmm. really maximize lantern bears full potential. You want ways to have the option to discard it, to get it in the graveyard, to suit it up as an aura right away, whether that's Selhoffen tumor or whether that's blood, but having that ability really powers up lantern bearer even further than it already is. Yeah. And I, I would say similarly stitched assistant works well there as the three mana three two ETBs mm-hmm. exploit. And when you exploit, you scry one and draw a card. I think that's really at home in these decks. Repository scob is often very awkward because you're like, you know, my decks are just often high creature count, like 18, 19 creatures, and then maybe a couple nurturing presences, a cradle of safety and like Sagarda's imprisonment or fierce retribution, like one to two pieces of interaction. But really, your interaction is just killing your opponent a lot of the time and just maximum pressure for them. So, repository scab is often awkward in that respect. Yes, I completely agree. Repository scab infinitely more important to blue red and blue black than it is blue white. But this deck is just it's just so so good. And and honestly, once you get once you get that first brine comer, you can just kind of know. If blue white is open for you, obviously, but you can just get that deck at common. And, and I think it doesn't need Brian Comer, but certainly the Brian Comer just sort of beefs up, I think, nurturing presence and cradle of safety specifically. Um, that I, I think it is really pushes the deck over the top. Yeah. And one of the best things is that the deck attacks the format on a different axis than most of the other decks. So it's very hard to play against. You know, if you're setting your deck up to play well against most of the decks in the format, you probably don't have a great matchup against blue-white. Right. And this is, I think, one of the reasons that Flame-Blessed Bolts shines so much in this format is that it, it is the deck's kryptonite a little bit. Yes. <laughs> Nothing feels better than Flame-Blessed Bolting Brian Comer. Yeah, right. Yeah, you see that and you're like, ah, dang. Like, I, I was all, all set up to just, like, outvalue my opponent. And that's one of the great things about the Disturbed deck is that it can, you know, at least go toe-to-toe with the best blood decks in the format in terms of the value it provides. But the blood decks do have access to Flame-Blessed Bolt, and that can be a whammy. But I, I, these three decks, I just keep ending up in a lot. And I just think uh, you should too, folks. Well, and some of that is blue being underdrafted, and some of that is probably the LR effect, right? Like, they poo-pooed blue, and they poo-pooed exploit early and hard in the format. Yeah, and, and now I'm reaping the benefits, so keep, <laughs> keep it coming, Marshall and LSV. <laughs> All right, great place to wrap us up. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Thanks so much to ChannelFireball.com for sponsoring this podcast. If you're heading over to CFB for any of those sweet things we talked about at the start of the episode, buying anything in the marketplace, or signing up for CFB Pro to read our articles, please use the code LOL when you check out to let them know we sent you there. You can check us out streaming. I'm at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome, Mr. Spelled Out. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter, and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later.
I think this card, I think it looked like junk. And now I feel like the the scuttle is that like this, is, you, every deck wants a copy of Wedding Invitation. <laughs> I think that's perhaps skewing a little bit too high. But I will okay, say- time out. We have to pause. Why? <laughs> because people that don't listen to your Survivor podcast aren't going to get that quite so much. But you do this voice on Come On In Survivors oh. where you're imitating Jeff. And that was your Jeff Ropes invitation voice. <laughs> which was too good oh man yeah pizza under the stars yeah you're right that was my jeff voice okay 